Welcome to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. And in this episode, we're talking about impact investing with Michael Trail. I'm exceptionally excited to be speaking with Michael, who is a very impressive individual. His arc of achievement spans from you know, being born in Wangaratta, Ducks of Morwell High School, uh, graduated from the University of Melbourne with first class honours, was an executive at Kodak, uh, was a research manager in the Office of, of the Opposition, being Andrew Peacock. He then completed an MBA and joined Macquarie Bank's corporate advisory team, uh, joining Sandy Lockhart at Macquarie De Direct Investments, where they built a team that invested more than $400 million with annual average returns of over 30%. He then left Macquarie Bank uh, to become a founding, uh, a founder of and CEO of Social Ventures Australia, uh, where he went on to become the founding director of Good Start Early, Early Learning, and he was appointed chair. I think if we wanted to talk about impact investing, I don't think there's anyone more qualified in Australia than Michael Trail. So I think you'll get lots out of this. It's a terrific interview. I hope you enjoy it and please feel free to send me any feedback. Michael, welcome to Inside the Rope. Nice to be here, thanks. Michael, if perhaps we could kick off with you giving us a bit of your background and also a bit of uh, an overview of the things that you're currently involved in and what they do, please. Sure. So uh, I was a co-founder of Macquarie Bank's original private equity business in the late 80s. I, I joined that in 1987 and uh, I left that kind of jump ship in inverted commas in 2002 to set up a non-profit organisation called Social Ventures Australia. And one of the motives for that was that I was really keen to see were there ways I could use whatever business experience I had particularly in the private equity game where we'd invested close to $450 million in 42 businesses to make some sort of social difference. Uh, the personal motive for that was very much to do with who I am and where I grew up. I grew up in country town Victoria in a place called Morwell. It would probably show up, unfortunately, as one of those areas of disadvantage. You know, on the postcode maps of a postcode of disadvantage, more high unemployment um, and the community that I remember as a kid was, it was a good community, but it was pretty challenging also. And a big personal thing was the opportunity uh, for my brother and I to have a high quality education. Our father was the first in four generations to go past year 10 at school and he became a high school teacher and principal. So I think strongly embedded in the family DNA values around family, around community, around education were critical. And I think one of the things that uh, motivated me was that I'd had a set of opportunities, really courtesy of parents who cared about us, provided each of us with great educational opportunities. So I studied at Melbourne Uni. I did an MBA at Harvard University. I was recruited by David Clark, who was the founding chair and became a great mentor and friend. Um, and joined Macquarie, you know, the millionaires factory, uh, as it was badged. And personally, professionally and financially, I really enjoyed that. But it 41, 42, I had what my wife would have described with some justification as a kind of midlife crisis. And, and much as I enjoyed and really loved what I did at Macquarie, I really wanted to think about, could I do something different? And so that led me to become founding chief executive of what was then called the Social Ventures Initiative. And the idea was to invest in not business entrepreneurs, which is what I'd spent 15 years doing at Macquarie, but 
social entrepreneurs. So what's a social entrepreneur? Somebody who's doing extraordinary things in the education, non-profit world, making a real difference. And the kind of hypothesis, I guess, was that if you could back and identify those social entrepreneurs in the same way we'd work with the businesses we back with capital, help them around strategy, help them achieve their objectives, not just by writing checks, although that, of course, is not a trivial part of it, but if we could do those other things, we could really make a difference. So that was the sort of quick potted history. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed the work at Social Ventures. I stepped down as CEO four years ago, so I now have a portfolio of some really interesting board roles, most of which are in the social purpose world. I chair Good Start Early Learning, which is a billion-dollar social enterprise that was one of the initiatives one of the many initiatives that came out of SBA on the, on the board, and I chair the investment committee of Sun Super, and I'm on the board also of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is a remarkable $4 billion endowment left by the fabulous and generous entrepreneur behind Ramsey Healthcare, Paul Ramsey. So that's the kind of portfolio mix for me at the moment. So most people have a uh, midlife crisis and buy a red convertible sports car and you dive headlong into the philanthropy space. Yeah, it was a bit different, but as I say, it was really probably evolution, not revolution, in the sense that if you look at the data, and I guess one of the things spending a chunk of time at Harvard or a place like Macquarie, the left brain's pretty developed, you look at the data, and if you married that to the personal and lived experience, you know, my brother and I talk about it quite a lot. We knew kids at school in that community who were bright, capable kids, and when I went back with my brother Barry to a school reunion a few years ago, you're just reminded that... For a lot of kids who had that opportunity, um, they weren't reinforced by school, by family, and a lot of them have really struggled. And, and then you connect that to data that tells you if you're a kid growing up in a bottom 20% postcode, which is what Morwall is, compared to a kid in the top 20%, uh, which is where my wife and I now live, you know, in leafy Roseville, and um, hoping to keep our kids grounded, but there's a reality that I've kind of lived in both worlds. The gap in educational performance is astonishing. You know, what the data will tell you, the difference between a kid in a bottom 20% postcode and a top 20% postcode on average by the age of 15 is two and a half to three years in educational performance. So for a country that prides itself on being the nation of the fair go, that's a pretty crap outcome. And when you dig beneath the surface of that, I was really compelled by the idea that we have to attack that. We have to think about that differently. So the idea that you know you might, in sensible and sensitive ways, be able to use commercial and business disciplines in thoughtful ways to address that really appealed to me at a gut level. And of course, I think it was 2010 you were awarded an Order of Australia for your work to philanthropic and not-for-profit organisations. So I think you sell yourself a little bit short on some of the differences you've made and, and that position. Now, if we could perhaps kick off or dive into impact investing. And I, I was recently up in New York and I studied to and visiting some of the managers that we use in Connecticut and so forth. But one of the recurring themes and one of the topics that we were talking about up there was impact investing and social investing, the differences and the contrast. Can you give me your definition of impact investing? Yeah. So I think impact investing is where you can demonstrate clear financial returns and clear and measurable social returns. And let me give it, I think it's always easy to talk about these things with reference to practical examples. So why uh, is Good Start Early Learning, I think a really good large scale example of impact investing or social enterprise. 
That was a business we bought out of bankruptcy. It was the old failed ABC childcare centres. We had a non-profit syndicate behind that. We raised 165 million in capital. That money was raised in the form of debt. The investors who bought that debt that enabled us to buy the business received a 12% annual coupon, which is reasonable. Mm -hmm. and, and we repaid that debt early. And if you look at the structure of Good Start, which is now the largest provider of early learning and care in the country, we have uh, 652 centres around the nation. Having repaid that debt early, what we can do is explicitly invest for social purpose. So of our centres, we have 130 that are in bottom 30% postcodes. So you can see that balance between it provided a good financial return and we're very explicit about a bunch of indicators in terms of quality, in terms of providing opportunities for families and children from disadvantaged circumstances, and there's a set of investments we can make to be explicit about that. I think the broader question around impact investing, and it's the there's a bit of an elephant in the room conversation in this, is, is this institutional grade? If I'm an investor, um, is it plausible that I can invest and get reasonable returns that would sit on the risk return spectrum, but still do something tangible, constructive in terms of the social impact. And, and my strong belief is the answer to that question is yes. And I, and I say that as somebody who's a director of Sun Super, which is a $50 billion superannuation fund, I chair the investment committee. And, and it would be irresponsible at Sun Super if we looked at deals that have those characteristics unless they satisfied the prudent financial returns that we are legally obliged to look for. But as, but, as, but as a quick example of one of the transactions we've been involved in at Sun Super, there's a $200 million investment which provides an aggregated yield of close to 10.5% forecast to enable a faith-based service provider in the aged care area to expand the centres it works in. So it has business, discipline, financial performance requirements which are critical but at an ethical service level, the quality indicators around that are going to be critical, like Good Start itself. So I feel like if you step back from this, there is a universe of larger scale transactions that are possible, providing there's clarity and granularity and that you've got the right people running these organisations so you are very, very clear that they can generate reasonable financial return. So returns and doing good aren't mutually exclusive? I strongly believe that they're not. And I think that's a, that's a relatively unexplored universe. There's a lot of, as Paul Keating used to say, there's a pet shop parrot everywhere talking about the latest fad. I think impacting investing a little bit has become the pet shop parrot of the current age. And I think that's a pity because I think there's a lot of rhetoric and underneath that, there are a couple of things going on. One is I don't think there are nearly as many larger scale transactions that have proved the market as yet. I think they're coming. And I think there's a lot of confusion around impact investing in terms of either what it really is or a clarity in terms of the notion that there's always going to be an aggressive trade-off between financial and social performance. And I think providing we're clear about what the reasonable financial returns are and social performance in the larger scale market that, for example, super fund investors or any prudent investor with their self-managed super fund would look at, that's a small but growing universe of opportunities. And certainly for what it's worth as a family, my wife and myself have been investors in a number of impact investments. Some of them have been smaller scale. The organisation I was founding chief executive of has been leading the charge in what are called social impact bonds. Uh, they're very explicit about providing accessing funding 
for social programs where government repays based on the achievement of performance targets. Again, early days, but the first of those, which was the new pins social benefit bond, has paid a consistent return of 8.2 or 8.3%. That's a pretty decent return. We're very happy to have that from a financial point of view as well as an ethical point of view in our family portfolio. Michael, circling back to the uh, Good Start transaction, was there a layering of capital in terms of some investors with more of a philanthropic bent to them, for instance, being willing to accept either more risk or lower returns and then people later in the capital structure? Or was it all in at one sort of risk return profile? Yeah, the question on the capital structure around Good Start um, is a pretty important one. We really aim to keep the capital structure simple and we didn't want different classes of shareholders with different profiles in terms of their return expectations. So the core layer of capital, uh, which is, we called them social capital notes, in any other language they were a subordinated debt, they paid 12%. So there were 41 investors and three of the non-profit partners behind Good Start were also investors on the same basis, Parry Passu, social capital notes, all getting 12%. And we think that's very important, so there was a strong alignment. Now, on the back of that capital, we were able to raise over $120 million in conventional commercial debt from National Australia Bank that obviously paid a lower rate. So we thought it was, a, while it was innovative, it was actually quite a clear, coherent capital structure where the pitch was, we think this is a high-quality business opportunity, our belief is that if we can do this, not only can we repay and offer you a pretty decent 12% return, which is not bad in a low growth, low yield, low inflation environment, but we also want to be very explicit about improving the quality of opportunities around early learning and access. And I think we've been able to do both. The other, the other point I'd make is that I think the skill set that's required for these transactions to work is twofold. And uh, it's my great privilege to chair a board which I think has a super quality mix of people like Rob Koskar, who's a managing partner of, at Amentum, deep experience in private equity. Uh, Greg Hutchinson, who is a former managing partner of Bain. Wendy McCarthy, who has deep, deep experience in the social purpose sector. June McLaughlin, who's uh, one of the most experienced and globally respected practitioners in early learning. So you can see there's this kind of hybrid skill set around the financial disciplines and business side, but being serious and thoughtful around how we engage in the social purpose. And so the idea that never the twain shall meet, back to your original question, I think is wrong. If you can get people collaborating and working together effectively on that, and I should say up front, everybody at that table was very clear in the line of the Sisters of Mercy, no money, no mission, no money, no mission. So we're absolutely crystal clear that there had to be a priority to quality financial performance, otherwise we'd fail at every level. So that's the kind of mix that I think is repeatable across many sectors of the economy. I mean, I gave the example in aged care, think about TAFE, think about education. I think there's a spread of opportunities that are really interesting in NDIS and social housing. And I think those metrics of returns that pass financial muster but being explicit and granular around measuring the social purpose, you can do those things together. I think Good Start demonstrates that, but demonstrates that at a pretty decent scale. 
Michael, traditionally, a lot of investors who have gone into this area or talked about it or looked at it have come from a sort of socially responsible uh, area or an ESG, environmental, social and governance, where you'll have either negative or positive screens and they'll go through a traditional portfolio and throw out all the tobacco and throw out all the defence and throw out all the thing and then they're kind of left with a handful of companies. How would you compare and contrast this approach to investing for a social good versus that, that that's been done, I guess, in a historical sense? I'm, I'm a creature of the simple on this, David. I think each investment will have its own will have its own characteristics. So if, if you're very clear about both the financial returns and the social performance, and you're right, there is a spectrum of those. Now, I've emphasised the examples like Good Start or the age uh, faith-based transaction. The reason I emphasise those is I think there's more opportunity at scale that are mainstream investments. If you step back from that to your point, I think there are different shades of impact investing. So a lot of the work at Social Ventures, for example, I chaired a social impact fund. Now we were prepared to invest in smaller SME type uh, opportunities, uh, a lot of which were employment creating for excluded and disadvantaged Australians. And the return expectation often would be single digit rate of return, so say five to eight percent for investments that really were slightly higher risk. So if I was putting my private equity hat on, they'd be transactions where you'd say, on a pure financial risk basis, I'd probably like to see that I could get 20 to 30% annual rate of return, which is what our target and, and what we achieved in the 13 years I was involved in running that business at Macquarie. Now, in those cases, there is an explicit trade-off, which is I'd like my capital back, I'd like a modest rate of return, but I'm happy to accept that because I can see this is really transforming lives and making a social purpose difference. And I think there are a lot of good small-scale examples of that sort of social purpose investing happening. And I support that. I think that's great. But I think we've got to be clear in differentiating that from the kind of larger-scale transactions that can hit mainstream financial performance requirements as well as generating social good. Again, for what the personal experience is worth, uh, for us as a family, we have a chunk of our family portfolio, which is probably of the order of 8 to 10%, that we will in, in, invest in a broad range of impact investing. And that does include investments in that category where the financial returns are probably slightly below the risk return, but we feel very strongly that the social purpose they can generate is so significant that it's very motivating for us to do that. That leads into my next question in that, how would you encourage people to think about this if you have a high net wealth family or individuals and they like this concept? Is it a core and satellite approach or is this totally over their portfolio, i.e. would they say carve off 10% and say, all right, we'll invest this in social impact type of ventures? Or should they look over the whole portfolio and try and create a diversified portfolio of assets which also try to do some good? Look, I, I think this is very much a question of personal motive and what people want to do. My, my uh, encouragement in terms of both our experience as a family and obviously I'm somewhat biased having been on the other side of the fence at Social Ventures and initiating a lot of these transactions. But what we found at SVA was really interesting that a lot of people would start to experiment. So when we did Good Start or the first social impact bonds, people might put in a relatively small amount, see that that worked really like what it was about and start to do more. 
So the SVA experience has been very much in the probably six or seven transactions, good start, social impact fund, now there's three or four social benefit bonds. There's a lot of repeat custom. There is a lot of investment where people have put a toe in the water, really enjoyed it, like the fact that they can see they're generating reasonable financial returns, be close, and I think SVA has done a very good job of giving a practical sense of what the money is driving, what programs it's supporting. So there's a cadre of people who've become increasing invest, increasingly significant investors in that. Now that varies case to case. I'm seeing some people who still do that very much case to case. I'm seeing a lot of people who say, look, in principle, I've got square brackets around 5% or 10% and I want to do more of this. I think it's fair to say in what we're seeing, A, it's a growing market. B, there's more supply of capital than transactions available. And so I think that really means that there's a lot of interest, but probably there needs to be more deals and more opportunities. You know, So the encouragement, get out there, have a look at what's around and uh, invest. Be prepared to be prepared to have a go at some of these things. This feels and is a relatively new type of market and you were in you know, private equity reasonably early. Um, what, and I, I draw the sort of similarity, but also with these new sort of markets and these new areas, there's often new opportunity, but also some dangers. What are some of the things that you would encourage people to make sure they analyse and analyse correctly when they're looking at transactions in this space? Yeah, look, a couple of points. One is I absolutely agree it's, it's an early stage and growing market. So be careful, you know, and I, I, I have, I'm old enough now to remember vividly when, when I was cutting my teeth at Macquarie Bank in the late 80s and early 90s. What, what's private equity venture capital? And I remember carting our wares to the super funds and frequently being told, oh, venture capital, private equity, Australia's small market, it's high risk. I don't know that there's the capacity for this to happen. We then had a $50 million fund. That became a $110 million fund. That became $220 million. You know, wind the clock forward 10 years. If you're an asset allocator and you don't have 3 to 6% in private equity, you're probably out of a job. So I've seen that movie before. And I actually think the same opportunity set exists in impact investing. It will grow. And the same rules apply to impact investing as I would have observed in PE and venture capital. Who raises the capital in PE now? It's funds and people who've got a track record of performance. So that takes three to five to eight years to build. It's evidence that there's serious homework done backing high quality service providers, looking for people who do that with consistency and integrity. So I think the advice is do the homework, be very alert to what I call performance clarity. Performance clarity and expectations around what are the business assumptions behind the financial performance? And if you're focused on social performance, and you should be, what are the measures that would indicate success in that? So, so there's, a, there's an additional layer to that journey of being an impact investor for those that are serious, which is you want to be clear that the performance metrics around social performance are there. Now, so for many of your audience who are very business savvy and literate, who've run successful businesses themselves, the business stuff is easy and kind of receive knowledge, you know what to look for. The social purpose stuff can be a bit more challenging, but that's part of the fun, you know, really developing an in-depth understanding of what are the programs and how can you allocate that capital that make a transformational difference to people's lives. And I've, certainly for me, personally and professionally, there continues to be a learning curve around that, but a very rich 
personal and professional learning journey around what actually does it take in the Good Start Early Learning Centres when you go into a really tough postcode and you've got families where there's often a lot of domestic violence, uh, two and three-year-olds who have poor diets, uh, showing all of the early indicators of disadvantage that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives. What is success in terms of grabbing hold of those 18 months, two-year-old, three-year-old kids, engaging them and their families and changing their trajectory? And you better be clear about what it is that you're doing that's working and what isn't. So there's a level of homework around that which is different, but uh, I think immensely rewarding for those who start on that journey. Now, measuring financial performance is pretty easy and straightforward and important, as you mentioned. But how do these type of ventures and these transactions measure the impact and also the overlay of how valuable that is? Yeah, it's a good question and the, um, it varies very much case to case. So again, let me give you a specific example of the first social impact bond in the country, which was NewPin. So the idea of that was that it worked with a really challenging social cohort, kids who are in foster care. Now, at an economic level, we know that kids who are in foster care, apart from the damaging social consequences, many of those children are in five, six, seven, eight homes between the time they're two or three years old and they're 15. Mm. Pretty challenging. Apart from that, we know it costs the state about thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year to, to manage and look after those kids. Per so, child? Per child. Okay. Per child. So, you know, you, you look at the economics of that and then... Uniting Care ran a pilot program called NewPins. Mm -hmm. And what the objective of NewPins was to work with the family and the children and to try and reconnect in a thoughtful, caring and sustainable way, and that's obviously critical, with their birth parents on the basis that the long-term social, educational, emotional outcomes where that could be done effectively on a long-term basis were both life-changing. Go back to the economics. They're saving the state 36 grand a year on a reasonable discounted cash basis for each successful outcome for a three to five year old, you're saving the state $150,000 to $200,000. So in that case, as an example, the social benefit bond and the KPI was what is the reconnect rate, i.e. of the number of families who go into that program, what percent of those children in an appropriate loving, caring environment are reconnected to their families? And the difference between that and what happened without the program, you can quantify the level of savings. So that was a critical KPI that underpinned the new PIN social benefit bond. And the point of that example is that in each case, there will be one or two key, key, performance, key performance indicators that highlight what the social issue is. And if you can drill down on that and understand, is the program, is the body of work driving a successful, measurable outcome, long-dated outcome, that's where we need to get to. Fantastic. It's a very exciting part of the market for me and a lot of my clients have a lot of interest in this. Thank you very much for your time and uh, your expertise in this, in, in this area. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope, Michael. Pleasure to be with you, David, and uh, really appreciate your interest in a market that I think in 10 years, if I'm invited back, will be a multi-billion dollar market. So thank you. Tremendous. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.